Open your Bibles with me this morning to the 100th Psalm. The 100th Psalm is a short five verses that we're going to read all of it this morning. We're going to look at the topic of praising God with thanksgiving. You'll even notice that the title of this psalm is a psalm of praise. Let's begin reading. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him, and bless his name. For the Lord is good, and his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. Here the psalmist writes almost what we sang this morning, a doxology to God. He is writing in praise to God. Now, the psalms are cut into five different books, how they are in... Hebrew, they cut them into five different sections, and this is specifically in the fourth book inside of the Psalms. And even into that, it can be cut into a specific subsection between Psalm 95 and Psalm 100. And in Psalm 95, it begins to talk about how God is king, and because he is king, that we should sing praises to him. And it ends this subsection with basically singing praises to God. If you ever study through the Psalms, they are unbelievably theological and yet unbelievably practical and experiential. The Psalms are quite a different book because we see both prophesied of uh, the coming of Christ. We see David wrestling with his own frustration and own sin at times. We see the psalmist singing praises to God. It is, as it were, the original hymn book of the Old Testament. I think sometimes in our culture we miss out to some degree because we've replaced the singing of psalms with hymns. Now, I'm not against the singing of hymns. There are some hymns that I really, truly love. But I think we've missed out a little bit in completely doing away with all the singing of psalms. Not only are you learning Scripture and memorizing Scripture, but you're singing the inspired Word of God. And here we see it is make a joyful noise unto the Lord. The very beginning verse is telling us something about the psalm itself, how it is building up from Psalm 95 to Psalm 100. It builds up from saying God is king to then telling us what? That because of what has transpired in the past psalms, we should sing praise unto God. Now, as we look at this specific psalm, we're going to learn how to praise God how specifically we are. Now, it's not going to tell us when we should stand, when we should sit. It's not going to give us specific liturgy. And what I mean by liturgy, there's nowhere in the Bible that it says meet at 1030, right? (laughs) There's nowhere in the Bible that says end at 12. We could do like the Apostle Paul did in Acts and have a sermon for five hours. And nobody says amen. (laughs) Nobody ever does. But you, you see my point. There is no place that says start here, end here. There is no place that says have 30 minutes of congregational singing. There is no place that says, just have an hour of preaching. Yet we are given the ingredients of worship in the New Testament, and here in this psalm, we're given some specifics 
to how we are to worship God, specifically in attitude and action. You'll notice, and we're going to study these principles, we are first in verse 1 to praise God or make a joyful noise unto him. Verse 2, we are told that we are to serve God. Verse 3, we are told we are to know God. And in verse 4, we are told that we are to enter thankful. So as we look at those principles, and the psalmist is even going to tell us why we are to do this. He doesn't just tell us we are to do it. Sometimes as a parent, I can look at my children and say, do this, and I don't give them a reason why. Now, sometimes God tells us that, do this. He told Abraham, at that time Abram, to leave Ur of the Chaldees and to go in Genesis chapter 11, but he doesn't tell him why or where until chapter 12. Sometimes he tells us to do something without telling us why. But here he gives us explicit reasons why. Two specific verses, both verse 3 and verse 5, give us the why of worship. Okay, let's look at first praise. In verse 1, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. The first principle of worshiping God is to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Here we see he's not just speaking exclusively to the people of Israel. Now, it is true that they were the chosen nation of God in the Old Testament, an image of what God would do in the New, kind of a microcosm, as it were, a small image of God's people throughout all ages, a chosen generation, as Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's speaking to all people here, all ye lands. He's saying all of the lands should be praising God. That means every single individual creation of God should be praising God. Even those that don't believe in him, God is still due worship, right? Everybody should be praising God. We're going to find out why later, but here you first have that command, all ye lands, indiscriminately. Everywhere, everyone should be praising God. But he says, how make a joyful noise unto the Lord. In other words, we are to sing to God with happy, spontaneous shouting. Some uh, ways you can in, kind of translate this when it says a joyful noise, it can be a joyful shouting. I kind of like that, you know. Sometimes when I tell my children something we're going to do, they never know if it's going to be a day of rest at home. Uh, Saturday, we had big plans. We never told them what it was because if we tell them what it is, then we have to come through with it, right? <laughs> well, after Wednesday and Thursday and Friday of being around a lot of people you see just once a year, <laughs> we turned around and decided as an executive move between parents not to do what we were planning on doing. You know, we, we kept it to ourselves. We decided to cocoon a little bit on Saturday. But, you know, when I tell them what we're going to do, if maybe it's summer hits and I say, all right, guys, let's plan out a week. You know, I try to get them out for two reasons. I want them to enjoy their childhood. But also, if they're not out getting energy out, I'm not enjoying their childhood. <laughs> it gets frustrating because they say, uh, um, if you ever study you know, um, kind of the dynamics of a child's mind. They say for every two hours inside, they need 30 minutes at minimum outside to get the energy out. And I do that during the summer, you know, or when they're at home with me. All right, we've been inside two hours. Let's get out. You know, it calms down everybody. Well, you know, when I tell them finally what we're going to do, hey, guys, we're going to go to the McLean Center. We're going to go to the zoo. Hey, who wants to go to Atlanta Aquarium? Who wants to go to Rock City? Who wants to go to the beach? Their immediate reaction as children 
is typically to incoherently just shout. <laughs> you hear just, wow, this is, oh, this is awesome, this is amazing. They're just so excited, right? Excitement overflows to where they just want to just yell in happiness. You see, the image here, and we will get to how it should be coherent. We should know, as it says in verse 3. But here, the first image we get is to just shout with praise to God. To just shout in happiness. To just shout to God. Because our heart is so glad. Notice it says, when it says make a joyful noise, make a shouting noise, make a noise to God, it doesn't just say do it because we're scared of him. Now, sometimes my children may shout out of fear, right? They see daddy coming. We're afraid. Run, <laughs> one child says to the another. Daddy's coming. Run. <laughs> you don't believe that happens. I have two boys, and you know that happened. He's coming. <laughs> and then you hear those loud footsteps. Well, it's not slavish fear that we shout and praise to God. We're not shouting because we're scared, even though that may happen. We're not shouting because it's just an obligation or duty. You know, you can sit down and play a musical instrument and it have no emotion in it at all and it's just coming through. I played for many years and, you know, it just came through. I could do that. You know, you can tell the difference even in singing, the difference between a heart that is doing it for the right reason and a heart that is just doing it through emotions. Um, it's just kind of coming out. It's of necessity. It's of duty. It's of obligation. But here he says, shout with gladness. Like how my boys would when I tell them we're going to do something, there's an attitude behind it that is shouting to God. Now, as we see this, when he says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands, he's not saying that we should make a joyful noise just in times of good circumstances. As we're going to see in the psalm, this is not dependent on the outward circumstances of life, but this is an inward position of the heart through which the mouth cries to God, regardless of the storm that's around us. A person can look to God in faith and still shout with happiness, even as the storms begin to beat against them. Last night I woke up, and none of my, the rest of the family woke up. And I, since I've had children, I've become a very light sleeper. I remember back in the 90s when Hurricane Opal came through um, Alabama. Some of y'all may remember that all the way back then when Hurricane Opal came through the uh, Gulf and came through, knocked down, knocked down multiple trees in my parents' yard. I had no idea that the hurricane came through. It destroyed our uh, playhouse, but I slept through it. I have children, and I don't sleep deep anymore. The very second I hear rain, I wake up because I want to know what it is. I woke up for about 30 minutes to an hour last night and just listened to the wind beat against our house, knocked over some Christmas decorations outside, threw a bow that my wife had put up close enough to the dog, and the dog ate it. You know, it just beat against our house. Well, you know, the beauty of this is joy is almost as a person that is in a storm shelter. It doesn't matter how life is beating against it and how the winds are crashing down against it. That storm shelter is keeping the joy secure. Our Lord is as a storm shelter 
that when we stand on that rock, the rock of our salvation, as one of the previous psalms just before this one says, the rock of our salvation, as we stand on that rock, joy is found that we may cry out to him in happiness regardless of circumstances. You see, as we look through the psalm, we're going to see that this is an inward position of the heart that is anchored into who God is and not what is happening around us. It is anchored in the person of God and his attributes. So he says first, the first point that we are given here in the psalm of how to worship is that we are to praise him with joy. We are to sing praises to his name. I also want to point out in this, sometimes, before we, before we move on to verse 2, sometimes, and I, I've been guilty of this before, honestly, you know, sometimes I've said a good song service, a good amount of praise and worship before the sermon really makes it easier to preach, and that's true. You know, it can get discouraging if, you know, nobody's singing, but at the same time, some, we sometimes say, I, I go to worship to get built up to worship. I go to worship to find that joy, and that's true. I worship because I want to find that worship, I mean that joy. Worship is a means, an ordinary means through which God fully solicits and cultivates the joy in our heart, yet at the same time, before I even get to worship, I'm approaching God because I have that joy in my heart. You see, I'm not going there necessarily to make a withdrawal. I'm going there to make a deposit. And this is the idea. I'm, we're not singing so that we might find our joy, even though we sometimes find it in the singing, but we're singing and praising God because we have that joy. All right, first principle. First principle was praise in verse 1. Second principle in verse 2 is what? We are to serve the Lord. Again, it says, with gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness, not with fear, not with some type of slavish attitude, not with obligation, but with gladness, it is out of gratitude that we serve God. And when it says serve here, serve the Lord with gladness, come before his presence with singing. Now, in both verse 1 and verse 2, you'll notice that this word Lord in, our, in most translations, especially the one that I'm reading from this morning, is all capitalized. Again, as we've looked at it multiple times, over the past week in the Old Test over the past weeks in the Old Testament, when you see the word Lord in all caps, what have we learned? It comes from the same word in which we get our English word Jehovah, which is the covenant name of God. He's not just master, like the other word for Lord, but this is speaking of him being master and covenant keeping Lord. He is the God, and He is the Lord the covenant keeper. So the Lord Jehovah. He says, serve the Lord Jehovah with gladness. Now, we can read in the book of Colossians where it says, in everything that we do, do in the name of the Lord. So there is an open sense, a very kind of ambiguous sense in which everything we do is in service to God. I told you all this before that that was actually on our wedding fans that we had, the verse in Colossians chapter 3 where it says, in all things do in the name of the Lord. You know, that was kind of our way of focusing our marriage on starting on that principle that everything we would do, we would do for the Lord. Y'all laugh that when I said I wanted the verse to be from 
Acts chapter 3, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give unto thee. <laughs> that was my marriage verse. I ain't got nothing, baby, but you know, I'm giving, you know, what I have I give to you. She kind of vetoed that, and we chose a different one. But you know, there is a sense in which everything we do, we are doing with gladness in serving the Lord. If there is gladness in your heart for the Lord, everything else seems easier to do. Gladness being that principle through which service comes. Now, I remember Sonny Piles once said, you remember he passed away recently, and he said in a sermon once that some people wake up and say, good Lord morning, and some folks will wake up and say, good morning, Lord. <laughs> There's a difference, right? You know, sometimes we can wake up without gladness, and we say, good Lord, it is morning. My Lord, I woke up and it's morning. But what we should be doing is waking up and saying, good morning, Lord. It's morning again. I have another opportunity to sanctify my heart and my mind and my body to serve you. I have another opportunity with gladness in the general sense that everything I do is going to be for your praise and going to be to serve you. Everything that I do in my life is now as a consecration for my Savior. As Paul would say in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Everything we do falls under this banner. I've noticed we have the tendency as very structured Americans to categorize everything. You know, we set a certain time for this. We set a certain time for that. I'm reminded of my friend from Africa who once said, you Americans have the clock, but we got the time. You know, they'll just show up any time during the day to worship. Sunday is literally an entire worship experience. You may have 300 people show up that day, but none of them are there at the same time. <laughs> and they're just coming and going. But we section off things and categorize time. And, you know, Monday morning is for work through Friday. Saturday is the me time. Unless you have children, then it's the their time. <laughs> and then Sunday, you have that hour and a half block that's the Lord's. Old Confessions used to speak about how the Sabbath was exclusively set aside for the worship of God. And you had to wear, and I'm not as, as it were, legalistic on that as some people would maybe look at it, but at the same time, Sunday was a very important endeavor, wasn't it? It was exclusively for the worship of God. Now it's, in our culture, regulated to just that time slot. And if then, right? <laughs> and if then. But in all honesty, everything we do, there is no category that is not under the banner of serving God. When I love my wife, that's because I'm serving God. In a general sense, I am serving God. When I am good to my neighbor, I am serving God. When I wake up in the morning and go to work with an attitude that I am going to be the best employee I can, I'm serving God. When I treat my children in the love and admonition of the Lord and even in discipline, I am serving God. Therefore, it has to be done with gladness or it's not done in the service of God. Well, we see in a general sense it can mean that, but equally as we kind of focus it down, as you notice the verse does not end with just serve the Lord with gladness, but it defines it with the rest of the verse saying come before his presence with singing. The verse itself actually gives a 
specific instance in which we are to serve the Lord with gladness. Now, in a general sense, it's true that in everything that we do, we are to serve the Lord. But specifically, he focuses in and zooms in here. He looks at this and says, come before his presence with singing. You see, now it's speaking of a collective sense. We're coming together. We're coming together to worship God. In other words, he commands collective worship as a service. He commands it. And if a person is saying they, can, they are serving God while at the same time of never, ever, ever serving God collectively, they cannot claim to be serving God generally. That sounds harsh, but it's really not because that's what God commands. Now, I know there are issues of life that make it to where some people can't come. I've been sick before, and I've had to call in, right, <laughs> and say, can somebody else fill in for me? Hey, you don't want me there? I don't want you there. Um, I, I've, I've learned over time that I need to do that. Um, I, I've told you all before, I was in Nashville once, and uh, I, I went, and I, I preached, and I thought, I'm fine. I can handle this. And in the afternoon service, when I was preaching again, my face turned solid white, and I stayed silent for about 15 seconds. And they were looking at me wondering what was going to happen. And, well, I became a holy roller. I just about fell down and rolled out of the pulpit. <laughs> I've had to learn to not push myself when I can't do it. But at the same time, when we can, we, we should be serving the Lord collectively. I had an uncle once that I was visiting after church, uh, visiting my aunt, and I was going, and I, I you know, I just drive around and see folks, and it's easier to do that when you don't have children, right? <laughs> and uh, we would just drive around as teenagers and see family members and see fit folks, and I was sitting with my uncle, who had never, ever, ever probably in my lifetime did I ever see him attend worship. My aunt was always at worship, miss her dearly. And my uncle looked and said, you know, I think I can serve God just as well on my front porch watching those rabbits play in the yard as I can coming together and singing hymns with y'all. And I thought, well, that's fine, but that's not what God commands. And if you, if you are serving Christ, remember, the term in Acts is Christianity, not me-ianity. <laughs> if I'm going to serve God according to Christ, I must follow him according to how he says to do it, as we're going to see in just a minute. But he says, come before his presence with singing. If we're going to serve God in any capacity, it must equally be serving God collectively. We must serve God collectively. So verse 1, it says to praise him. It says to praise him joyfully. Verse 2, it says serve him with gladness. Praise and then serve. And then in verse 3, he gives us the first reason in which we know how we are or why we are, to serve him. And this will also be the third way in which we do worship him, because it not only gives us a reason, but it also tells us how. Worship should be built on knowledge. We went from praise to serve to now know. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. Explicitly in the text, what it means is, know ye that Jehovah is God. Now, in the backdrop of the Old Testament, what this is trying to tell us is that as they looked out at all the other pagan cultures, um, Levi this past week, some of you may have saw that I posted about this on Facebook, Levi has been reading through some of the Old Testament, 
And I thought he had stopped because I hadn't seen him. Well, come to find out the reason his globe is always on in his room at night that I have to go turn off his globe that lights up is because he's been reading. And I did not know this, but he just finished Leviticus in a month and a little under a month and a half. I'm a little embarrassed how much he's been reading <laughs> and how much I, I maybe, you know, I'm like, have you been out reading me, boy? <laughs> you know, you've been reading a lot. Well, he was asking me about the Hittites. You know, is that Hittite? No, that's Hittite. How about the Canaanite? No, that's the Canaanites. And we were going through the Old Testament ites, the ites of the Old Testament and explaining who they were. Well, they all worshipped some type of false deity. Babylon worshipped Dagon, the fish god. You can go through even, I believe it was the Assyrians worshipped a bull god. The Romans, you can look at worshipping, um, I believe it was the Greeks and Romans, they were different names, but they were the same character, Jupiter and Zeus. They named the same character, basically, but one was named after a planet and one had the other pagan name. They're the same thing. And you have this backdrop of paganism standing behind this psalm. So when it says that Jehovah is God, the Lord is God, what it's saying is that everything else is not. All of the false religions that you see, that is not God. There is exclusively one God. Know ye, know that the Lord is God. This tells us that worship must also be built on knowledge. You cannot worship somebody to whom you know very little about. Sometimes I've heard folks say, you know, I love Christ, but I hate theology. And one thing I always say, try looking at your spouse and saying, I love you, but I don't want to know a thing about you. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's just kind of strange. You know, if I looked at Rebecca and said, honey, you're beautiful, but I don't, just never speak. You know, how, how do you think that would go over? I'd be ducking mighty quick for whatever was in her hand. You're beautiful, honey. Just don't talk. I don't want to know anything about you. You know, and if my wife looked at me and said, Honey, well, she couldn't. She probably wouldn't say you're handsome. Honey, I love you. Let's just go that way. Honey, I love you. But I don't care to know anything about you. There's not really a relationship there, is there? There's not much of a relationship. You see, worship must be built intrinsically on theology. Even in 1 John chapter 2, when it says that we obey his commandments, that we may know that we know him. Notice obeying his commandments isn't how we know him. Knowing him is through the sovereign blessing of God, bestowing it upon the soul of the individual, as we're going to see in this verse 3. But at the same time, we cannot worship him as his sheep without some type of knowledge of him. We have to know something about him. How can I say, praise God, from whom all blessings flow, if I don't know what those blessings are? How can I say, praise God, from whom all blessings flow, if I don't know how those blessings flow through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, who died on a cross in my place? How can I say, praise God, that I'm going to heaven, if I didn't know what it costs for me to go to heaven? <laughs> you, you can't praise God without the knowing you can't sing praises to him without knowing something about him. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. I would even say this goes past just the teaching of God's word because, yes, the teaching of God's word should be first, it starts in the text and it ends with the text. It should be something that... It, expounds and exposits the word of God to where we know more about him. 
And we learn preaching is teaching. Or as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the old English preacher, preaching is logic on fire. (laughs) It should be built on the Word of God. However, this equally goes to the way we praise God in song. You know, there are some songs that I love the way they sound, like in hymnology, the way that the, the hymn sounds and the way that the music plays, but the words themselves are just plumb horrible. <laughs> you know, there's some on the radio I hear, and I'm like, man, that sounds good. And then I actually get to listen to the actual words, and I'm like, that's horrible. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's not right. This even makes him singing take greater weight. What are we saying to God? Because you're not the audience when we sing praises. You know, there are some hymns I like, but you're still not the audience. The audience is God. We're singing praises to Him, not us. We're singing praises to God. And so what am I singing? When I call out a hymn, when I request a hymn to be sung, when I listen to hymns in my car, what am I listening to? You see, this makes everything about life about knowing Him to a greater extent. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. And then he tells us, because we've, as a subsection from this, why we should praise and serve and know. Why is it the first why? The first why. Why is it that we should praise, serve, and know? First, it is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. The first reason that we should be to the praise and the glory of his name. The first reason that we should give thanksgiving to God is what? We're not self-made people. Whether physically or spiritually, we cannot stand up and say, I did this. Consider the universe itself. There's not a single atom that has ever been created or a single molecule that's been rogue on its own that can stand up and say, Lord, you are not my judge, you are not my God, I did it on my own. There's not a single planet that stays in rotation because it can say, I'm doing it all. You remember uh, the song, I did it my way? There's none of us that can stand up and proclaim our own goodness and that, well, I did this. I think because of our Americanized kind of individualistic ideals, and don't get me wrong, I I love individual freedoms. Y'all know me. (laughs) I love individual freedoms. But because of that individualistic viewpoint that we have in America, I think it's almost made us think that we really are that good. We, we, we really just do it on ourselves. I, I, I deserve the praise. As Nebuchadnezzar stood up before his kingdom and said, look at the kingdom that I built, and God just smacked him down. Sorry, that was a little bit loud, wasn't it? God brought him down. Taking that from a physical sense or a temporal sense to a, the spiritual realm. You know, Jupiter didn't stand up and make himself big and with a... That little spot, Saturn didn't say, I want these rings. Adam didn't raise up from the dirt and says, say, God gave me, give me life right now, breathe it into me. In a spiritual sense, if we are his creation, as Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, his workmanship. Not we ourselves, he hath made us, but equally it goes from just a creative sense in which God, in which God is the source of everything, whether in time or eternity, 
to then also showing intimacy, we are his people and the sheep of his pastor. Notice how it goes from we're his creation to also saying we're a sheep. You know, there are some things that I have created and made, and I didn't really care to keep them, right? I didn't really care to protect them. I, they didn't really, it didn't bother me if I threw them away. And I'll tell you, as, two, as a parent that has two boys, you'd be amazed at how many things from infancy to now, look what I made for you. Put this on the fridge and keep this forever. <laughs> how many of that stuff do you think has been kept? I mean, a lot of it, yes. And I have bookmarks and my Bibles and my commentaries. Most of my bookmarks come from my two little boys making them, and they're in there, and I love them. But there's some stuff that we make that we don't keep, right? There may be some stuff that you've made that you haven't kept. You were the creator of which, but you did not keep it with your sovereign pleasure as an individual in that sense of an autonomous person. God doesn't just say that he created it or created you, but then he looks and says, not only is God the creator, but we are his, his people, his sheep of his pastor. What is it? this implying about God. This is implying about God that not only is his, he is our creator, but he's our protector and sustainer. He's our provider. He keeps us. He protects us. One thing a shepherd had to do was not only guide the sheep to places where they could eat and places where they could drink. He feeds us. He sustains us. As a parent would a child continually at certain times of the day feeding their children. After Thanksgiving, Rebecca and I looked at each other on Friday and you know, we're stuffed for three days, right, after it's all done. And Rebecca and I looked at each other and said, do we really have to feed them today? <laughs> you know, it's all thrown off, and we don't know what to do because we're off our schedule. Do we really have to feed them? Yes. They're under our watch care. We're going to feed them. Here, we're under God's watch care. He feeds and sustains and takes care. But not only that, but he is equally our protector. You can let cows into a field, and not much is really going to get them. Cows will fight back. Sometimes you may put a donkey in the midst of horses or cows because if you've never seen a donkey, coyote gets in there, it's going to take care of the flock, right? It's going to take care of the cattle. A donkey will protect itself. You may put a sheepdog in there to take care of it or some type of cattle dog. Well, sheep are the one animal that you have that it can't take care of itself, and it's not going to. Sheep ain't got no sense. Sheep are just open for the picking. I don't think it's a mistake that God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament speaks of his chosen people as being sheep. Because we can't protect ourselves. We can't feed ourselves. We can't take care of ourselves. And left to ourselves, we would be going over a cliff following the one in front of us. As I heard one preacher says, you know, bad idea, right? We'd all go be going over the edge, one after the other, just following the flock. But God is not just the creator. He is the shepherd. He's the good shepherd that gave his life for the sheep, that sustains us, that protects us, that keeps us. You see, it gives us the first why. It gives us the first why. God created us and God equally sustains us. It is because of God that we exist and it is because of God that we are protected I've said this before, God is not just a God who is a judge up there, but God is a God who is a shepherd down here. He is not just transcendent, but he is immediate. God is not just in heaven. God lives in 
you. So he gives us the first why of why we should praise him, serve him, and know more about him is because he is our creator and he is our shepherd. Well, then he gives the, first, the fourth way in which that we are to worship him. Notice it says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. To put it in a more shorthand way, enter thankfully. The way in which we are to enter. I made the mistake one time of, uh, and my mouth gets ahead of me so much, and y'all know that. Sometimes I call it the Winslet-itis. We just, you know, we say things. And I'm like, oh, you can't bring that back. I'm reminded of an old episode of Andy Griffith where he kept saying things to the girl that he was with at that time, and he'd let it come out. He said, oh, I want to grab that and bring it back in. But you can't once it's said. And I, I was at a church once, first time, they're having a Christmas singing. And they called out a song, and it was a very happy song. Well, the past three songs I had led, everybody sang them just quiet and sad. And I looked up, and I said, listen, this is a very happy song, and we ought to sing this with some fervor. There was probably 50 people there, and it was so quiet for 50 people. And I said, we ought to sing this with fervor. I said, guys, we were not baptized in pickle juice. We don't take communion with lemon juice. And the Lord's people ought to be the happiest and most thankful people that exist on the planet. When we enter in, we should enter in with a smile. And if you're not smiling, then enter in, in with tears of joy. One time my son asked me, why are you crying? I was like, because I'm happy. You're crying because you're happy? Yes, because a thankful heart sometimes cries for what their Lord has done for them. Entering in the gates, but notice here it says the gates. That's specific to um, temple life in Judah, in Israel, entering into the gates. It's not just that you're entering in anywhere. There's a specific place. So we're, we learn a few things about this, about how we come thankfully. How do you come thankfully to worship God? First, you do it God's way. I don't go to the Bible and saying, this is how I want to worship God. Now let's go to the Word of God and let's see if I can justify what I'm doing. Sometimes you'll see that very often in pop culture, I want to worship God this way. Let's see if I can justify how I'm doing this in the Bible. No, we first go to the Bible and let it be our only rule of faith and practice. We do it God's way, enter into the gate. One specific way we have to enter in. God sets the standard. God sets the standard on how he does, wants anything done. Whether in life or worship, God sets the standard. Second, we are to enter in with a specific attitude. As it were, if you, as my children like to harass me, you made a rhyme. We ought to enter in with an attitude of gratitude. That's how we should enter in. We should enter in because I'm so happy that you did this for us, Lord. I just want to be here with you. I'm coming in thankful. Yes, I'm anticipating a blessing, but if I receive nothing, Lord, the fact that you are my creator, sustainer, and shepherd is enough for me to sing praises to you for all eternity simply for what you've done. If I receive nothing knowing what I've already received, Lord, I enter in with gratitude. As parents and grandparents, y'all often do things over and over for children, very often with very little thanks. How does it feel when a child receives a blessing and they're not really that thankful for it? You see the attitude in which they do stuff. I've told my boys, you know, there are certain things we have to do in life and we can either do them miserable. <laughs> you still got to do them, right? <laughs> you know, nobody, most people don't wake up on Monday mornings and say, 
great. I get to go to that job I've been at for 20 years. Oh, yes, it's there again. You typically you don't have that. And it's hard, but you still got to do it. But with the mindset of what my Lord has done for me, we can wake up and say, I am thankful, Lord, for what you've done. You see, it changes the way we think, an attitude of gratitude in knowing that I'm doing this because of what my God has done for me. When we solicit that type of mindset, it really makes it go by a lot faster in life. Things are easier when we're doing it from a thankful heart. When I'm serving my spouse simply because I have to and I grit my teeth and I'm taking out the garbage even though I don't want to, I'm cooking dinner, I'm mad, I'm putting the kids to bed, that's not doing very much, is it? But if I look at her and think, that beautiful woman with such bad eyesight married me, <laughs> she said, I do. And she has been with me for over 11 years now, and even though I'm hard-headed and I don't deserve her love and her beauty and her strength and her stability, yet she has been with me this entire time, it makes it easier to serve her. So we do it God's way, and we do it with an attitude of gratitude. And then lastly, as it says, we enter into his gates, we do it with thanksgiving, Notice, and enter into the courts with praise, be thankful unto him, and bless his name. What is the third way in which that we enter in? Through blessing his name. In essence, when it says bless his name, now sometimes when we say we bless somebody, we can mean I bless them with the present. Sometimes in the South, when we say bless their heart, that's not meaning in a good or positive light, right? <laughs> bless their heart. You see, we have a sense in which we bless in which it may not fit the biblical definition. Well, when it means to bless, it means in essence to eulogize. When you eulogize somebody at a funeral, what are you doing? You're speaking well of them. We can add nothing to God's glory in its fullness, in its everlasting fullness. God, in his eternal nature, is just as glorious as it ever has been, as it ever will be, if man was never created. God is just that glorious. Yet his created people, his created world, his created universe, is still to do what? to bless him or speak well of him. There is nothing more unbecoming of a spouse or a child when they speak ill of their spouse or parent. There's, I mean, I just don't know. Sometimes we vent, right? Sometimes we vent. Everybody vents. Frustration takes root. But there's a difference between venting and just in a sense just speaking so ill of, you wonder why, what, what's happened? And sometimes we can speak ill of God in our actions, but equally, what we sometimes do is speak ill of Him through negligence. Because God is deserving of being spoken well of. God is deserving of getting praise. God is deserving of being proclaimed the creator of all and the shepherd of His people. God is deserving of that praise. And because God is deserving of all praise, the third way in which we enter with thankfulness. Not only we're doing it His way, not only we have the attitude 
of thankfulness. But now we, the way that works out, we enter, we're grateful, and now what do we do? We praise Him. We're not going to stand up and praise ourselves. We're not going to stand up and say, look at what we've done like Nebuchadnezzar did, but we're going to stand up and say, all to Him I owe. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. Victory in Jesus. Poor, weak, and worthless though I am, I have a rich, almighty friend, as John Newton, the former slave trader, said. And then he finally ends in verse 5 as we're coming to a close to giving the final why. The final why. Now you'll recognize that the first why is built into the actions of God. God created and he shepherds. For everything God has done for us, he is due glory. But the second why, the final why in verse 5, doesn't deal with God's actions, though these are worked out in action. We see, because it says gives us three things. The Lord is good. That's the first one. Benevolent. It says his mercy is everlasting. So there's the second one. And then it says, and his truth endureth to all generations. There's the third. He goes from he is good, he is merciful, and his truth endureth. In other words, he's faithful. Even though these do work out in the actions of God, yet these are not just actions, these are attributes of God. We could turn this around and say that God is good, as it does say, the Lord is good. We can turn around and say that the Lord is merciful. And then we could turn around and say that the Lord is faithful. You see, God is not just deserving of worship because of what he has done for us. There are some people that deserve no pats on the back simply for who they are, but they've done a lot of good things. We may know nothing about them except for the good things that they've done, and so they deserve a little bit of credit on that, in that regard. However, our God, if he, had did, if he had done nothing in this world, if his actions were to withdraw himself and let the world go, as it were, as we see in Romans chapter 1, where he gave them over and gave them over, and gave them over to a reprobate mind. If God does not intervene in his providence in our life, if we are left with nothing, whether it be financial security, or whether it be with family, or whether it be a turkey on Thanksgiving, if we have nothing, God, simply because of who he is, is worthy of worship. God is good. God's mercy endures forever, is everlasting, and His truth endureth to all generations. He is faithful. I want us to think in three uh, how these three things work out very quickly before we have a prayer. He's merciful, or He's good, I'm sorry. God is good. The Lord, Jehovah, is good. This means both in a temporal view of how He works out in everyday life, He's good. God is benevolent or good to all of creation. Seasons come and go. I know we've had about three seasons in the past week in Alabama, right? I think we've had all four. We've had winter, fall, summer, spring, all in a week's time. And you know, God keeps that. The fact that the sun rises in the morning is a sheer testimony to the fact that God is good. As Jesus says, as God says in Matthew chapter 5, 
the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The very fact that God has rain come fall on all people shows that he is good in a temporal sense. But in a spiritual sense, he is good. If his son has come to die for you, if his spirit has indwelt in your heart and he has drawn you to himself, if you have become a sensible sinner by the sovereign grace of God to be able to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, God is good. God is good. His mercy is everlasting. You know, sometimes you may find a person that's merciful at one point and then the next person turns around and flies off the handle. I have had to, as a parent, I have calmed down a little bit. Now, my children may disagree with that. (laughs) They may say, oh, no, you have not. But the ability to find consistency in parenting. You know, sometimes, I've told you all this before, my uh, children play a game where they see who can make the parent fly off the handle the quickest, you know, and then whoever did that wins the game. And, you know, but consistency in parenting. Every day we wake up as a new person. I may be short-tempered today to my spouse. I may be long-suffering the next day. God is not like that. The old confessions would say God is without passions. And what that means, it doesn't mean that God does not love or God does not hate. But what it means is God is not simply controlled by emotions as humans are. And that when God wills to show mercy, His mercy is unending. If God has shown you mercy, regardless of what you do tomorrow or the next day, or regardless of what you have done in the past, if God's mercy has shined upon you, which means you are not receiving that which you deserve, and it's typically aligned and connected with grace, which is God giving you something that you didn't earn, if God has shown you mercy at all, He will forever show you mercy. God is not a temperamental parent or a judge that shows it once and then takes it away. Our God's mercy is everlasting. And it's not just everlasting starting today. It's been everlasting starting in eternity. And then third, his truth endureth to all generations. What this means is that God, that God in his truth is forever faithful to all generations, to his people. In a time of infidelity and unfaithfulness, in a generation and a culture that does not understand what a contract means, what a church covenant means, what a marriage covenant means, in a, in a, a, in a generation in which you can't trust anybody, it's a blessing to know there is still one who you can always trust, whose truth endureth to all generations. Or as Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5 tells us, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's two Greek words repeated on itself, which means I will never, no, never leave you. I will never, no, never forsake you. In closing, I want us to see what this does for us and how this is kind of worked out. In 1 Kings chapter 10, This is when the Queen of Sheba visited King Solomon. Most of y'all will remember some of the terminology that is used here because in verse 7 it says, Howbeit I believed not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it, and behold, the half was not told me. She's going, she's heard of everything that's happened, 
This is 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 7. She says, look, I've seen your kingdom. What I was told does not do it justice, in other words. What you told me or what I had heard through rumors about your kingdom didn't do it justice. I tell people that about my wife. You know, what I speak about her doesn't do her justice. You know, it doesn't do it justice what is told about our Lord. And she looks here, the Queen of Sheba looks at the kingdom of Solomon and says, what was told me, I've seen it, but look, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. And then she says something that is often overlooked. Happy are thy men. Happy are thy servants which stand continually before thee and that hear thy wisdom. You know, I'm sure that before the king of Babylon and Assyria and Syria and Persia and the Medes and Greek and Rome, the ones that stood before Egypt, the ones that stood in the courts of kings, they probably stood there in fear. If the cupbearer, as it were, looked sad, he had the possibility of just being slain. A king could look and say, I don't like you today, take him. Can you imagine the fear? I mean, that's like even in, today, in today's times in the presidency. I mean, to hear the words, you're fired, right? <laughs> I mean, we see that every single day, a constant turning around. Somebody's fired in government. You know, walking around in fear. Yet here Solomon's court was filled with people that it says, happy are they. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that when we stand in the presence of God because of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, we do not have to stand before God in sorrow, in sadness. We do not have to stand before him as a slave or in fear. But we can be and we should be as those that stood in the court of Solomon. When people come in and see what they had heard of, the God of all glory, the great Jehovah, the good, the merciful, and the everlastingly faithful God, when they see the servants of that king, the God that created and the God that keeps, they don't see individuals that just have to be there. They don't see individuals that are scared to not be there but they see individuals that are happy servants to stand in the presence of the wisdom and the goodness of God. Brothers and sisters, we have something to be thankful for. We have something to which we can praise God for. We can praise Him. We can serve Him. We can know Him. We can enter in. Why? Because our God is good. He is merciful and He is faithful. Praise God that in all things, if we have nothing, if we have God, we can be thankful. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for your love and your kindness that you have drawn us to yourself. Gracious God, we know that if we have been given of the Father, if we have been given by you to the Son, that we will be drawn to you and that we cannot be cast out. Gracious God, we're thankful that though men and women are unfaithful in this life, that you are always faithful that in our darkest moments in which we have turned our backs on you, you are merciful forever and your faithfulness endures forever. Gracious God, thank you for creating us and thank you for sustaining us. Lord, let us come before you with gladness. Let us come before you with gratitude and thanksgiving. 
Lord, let us leave here as we've come collectively to serve. Let us leave here in our life, not categorizing you to a specific instance or a specific moment, or, Lord, categorizing you to just an hour and a half on Sunday. But, Lord, let your light shine through us that we would be governed by you in all things and with gratitude that we would serve you forever. Gracious God, we're thankful for your Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us. Lord, please let us direct our minds to you and be thankful. Enter into your gates. In your name we pray, and amen.